the members of this church will be voting later today whether we will call one of our men into the eldership to labor alongside our present and only pastor. Several factors have brought us to this important hour in the life of our church. First, the increasing frequency with which our brother's name has appeared on our annual advisory nomination ballot for the office of elder over the years indicates that you believe that his character, conduct, and ability to minister the word unto edification qualify him to be a pastor in this church. Second, most, maybe all of you, believe that the New Testament norm and pattern for Christ's churches is a plurality of elders. Third, in speaking with our brother, he has indicated his receptiveness to serve as a pastor, should the mind of the Spirit be indicated in a positive vote, electing him to the office of elder in this church. So let me say, by way of introduction, that last Lord's Day you heard from his lips a brief exposition of the biblical qualifications for men who aspire to the eldership, similar to the exposition that I give annually at our business meeting. And several months ago now, I preached with some detail upon the important subject in our exposition of the epistle to Titus. Now, my purpose this morning is certainly not to recover that ground. Instead, my plan is to spend a few moments giving a broad overview on the important subject of the plurality of pastors as intended by the head of the church, as taught and practiced by the apostles of the New Testament. This morning we have five headings and three words of application. Our first heading, this is something of a scattergun approach. Certainly it can't be dealt with in any kind of detail in one message. So this is going to be something of an introduction this morning. But notice, first of all, a concise confessional statement supporting the plurality of elders. A concise confessional statement supporting the plurality of elders. Now, following the teaching of the New Testament, the Second London Confession recognizes two offices as the norm for the administration and care of each of Christ's local churches. Look at the London Baptist Confession, chapter 26, paragraph 8. And I think these are in your notes if you took, took up some notes this morning. It reads, A particular church gathered and completely organized, according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so-called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances, and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with, or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. Though the term pastors is not found in paragraph 8, we meet with it 
in paragraphs 10 and 11, indicating that the authors of the confession regarded elders, bishops, and pastors as essentially synonyms, all referring to the same office. An elder is a bishop and a pastor. A bishop is an elder and a pastor. A pastor is an elder and a bishop. And we'll look at these terms later on in the message. Further, our confession suggests in paragraph 10 that a church, as we read in paragraph 8, completely organized, will serve be served by a plurality of elders, since it speaks of a particular church as entrusted by Christ with bishops and elders, plural, who do the work of pastors, plural, paragraph 10. Finally, a diversity of function will necessarily exist among the elders according to their gifts and providential opportunities. Yet this diversity of function operates within a parity, that is, a recognition by the elders and by the church that equal authority exists among the pastors and overseers and elders. And this, I trust, will be made plain as we continue. So my plan this morning is quite simple. It is simply to present a brief survey of the New Testament witness to the plurality of the eldership and various related matters as we prepare to vote on the election of a man that would bring the eldership of this church and of the church itself more in line with the teaching of the New Testament. And brethren, I think that you will agree that this subject is not insignificant for a church that dares to call itself Reformed. So that's a concise confessional statement supporting the plurality of elders. Notice, secondly, a brief survey of the New Testament witness to the plurality of elders. It's stated in the confession. Where is it found in the New Testament? I suggest that the New Testament presents a clear case for shared leadership in Christ's local churches. Now, we might anticipate this from timeless scriptural principles and practices. Moses learned to administrate the affairs of the vast nation of Israel with chosen elders who themselves were supported by tribal leaders. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two in their missionary labors. The Apostle Paul took Barnabas, later Silas, and then other laborers to assist him in church planting. Team leadership is the model evident not only in world evangelism, but also in the administration of Christ's local churches. Finally, this pattern of choosing proven men was adopted by the apostles to care for needy widows in the Jerusalem church, what became the diaconate. This shared leadership was the pattern for the spiritual leadership of the church in Jerusalem, of those in Judea, and of churches planted in the wider world among Jews and Gentiles alike. So let us then notice, first of all, the many references 
to multiple elders in individual churches. What does the New Testament teach? Well, in Acts chapter 15, we read of the elders of the Jerusalem church, together with the apostles, convening a meeting to address a delicate doctrinal controversy. And the elders, if we had time to look at it, are regarded as a separate body of leaders that worked in concert with the apostles that would soon be sent out to various parts of the world when Christ brought persecution to scatter them. Furthermore, the church in Ephesus was served by a body of elders whom the Apostle Paul met with in Miletus as he hurried on his way to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. We'll see this later. Paul later wrote Timothy, who labored as his apostolic delegate with the elders in the Jerusalem church. And it was by the laying on of the hands of a plurality of elders in the Ephesian church that Timothy received gifts to carry out his ministry in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 4.14. We'll look at that later. This plurality of elders is confirmed by Paul's exhortation in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 to grant double honor to elders in the church that rule well, especially those that work hard at preaching and teaching. Furthermore, Paul's delegate in the island of Crete, Titus, was commanded to appoint elders in every city where a church was planted, chapter 1 and verse 5. In fact, I I don't think it's too much to say from Paul's language there that he regarded a church to be fully functioning only as it possessed functioning qualified elders. Furthermore, Paul writing from prison addressed the church in Philippi, including its deacons and elders, or overseers, or pastors, chapter 1 and verse 1. James instructed sick Christians to call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, chapter 5, verse 14. During his first missionary journey, Paul returned to churches he had previously founded and appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular, Acts 14.23. And we'll see this a little bit later. Peter's practice appears to mirror that of James and, jo- J- James and Paul, and we should expect this apostolic agreement on such a matter of importance, foundational importance, as establishing the government of Christ's local churches. Peter wrote to local churches, as we read in chapter 1 and verse 1, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, there in southwest Asia Minor, in which he urged the young men to be subject to their elders. Each church there in those places had a plurality of elders. Chapter 5 and verse 5. Brethren, assume from from all these texts is the apostolic pattern for church planting. The apostles planted churches into which 
they supervised the establishment of plural elderships. To these explicit texts, we might also add several references to shared leadership in local churches. Luke in Acts informs us that multiple prophets and teachers labored together with many others, he says, in the Antioch church, chapter 13, 1, and chapter 15, verse 35. Paul exhorted the church in Corinth to be in subject to leaders from the household of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 and 16. Likewise, he urged the members of the church in Thessalonica to respect and highly esteem those who labored among them and had charge over them in the Lord, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verses 12 and 13. These are men, not one man, but men, team leadership. That the writer to the Hebrews urges his readers to remember the ones who led them and who spoke the word of God to them. Men who watched over their souls as well as to later on, he says, greet all your leaders. This leads us to but one conclusion. The church or churches to which the letter to the Hebrews was written was led by a plurality of elders. So what's the conclusion? Where the New Testament mentions leadership in local churches, that leadership is shared. In some churches, the leaders are called elders. Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 they're called bishops or overseers and in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. In Antioch, the leadership contained prophets and teachers with many others. In other churches, such as in Corinth and Thessalonica, the office of the leaders is not clearly stated. But brethren, one thing is clear. A plurality of leaders served the church. We find no clear text in the New Testament that suggests a local church which is served by one elder. Plural eldership was the norm. The only exception that I can think of would be the seven churches in the book of Revelation in which the angel of the church was addressed. But it's a highly symbolic letter and I don't think we're to take that as a, the exception to the rule. We're to understand the unclear in the light of the clear. And I think it's very clear that Christ's churches had pluralities of pastors. So notice thirdly, the selection and ordination of a plurality of elders. Our Lord and His apostles teach that the goal of gospel preaching is not simply to make disciples. That's to short circuit the purpose of preaching the gospel. If it's just to make disciples and then just leave them. No. It is to organize those baptized disciples into local churches so that they may be taught all things that Christ has commanded. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, that they may be perfected through the ministry of the Word, through elders set apart for that purpose. 
that the Apostle Paul understood this goal is evident in the practice of establishing churches first and then later ordaining elders in those churches. Earlier in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and then established churches and then established elderships in those cities where those churches were. Now we read in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders plural, in every church singular, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, with these words, Luke very briefly records how elders were chosen. Notice that the choice of elders is not made unilaterally by the apostles, here by Paul and Barnabas, and then imposed upon the churches, as may seem to be the case by the translation of our English Bibles. Looks like they came in and they appointed the elders and the church accepted that. Now this will become clear when we understand the meaning of the word translated appointed in the New American Standard Bible or ordained, less clear, in the King James Version. It literally means the stretching forth of the hand. Not informal laying on of hands in the ordination service, rather. It is the raising of the hand by the members of the church, showing their choice of whom they would bring into the eldership. A.T. Roberts, the Greek scholar, states regarding this word, kairotoneo, extending the hand, kair, hand, toneo, to stretch. It's a compound word. He says it's an old word that originally meant to vote by show of hands, finally to appoint with the approval of an assembly that chooses, as in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 19. Mr. Barnes' comment is very helpful. He says the word translated appoint in our New American Standard Bibles and many other modern translations occurs but in one other place in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 19, where it is applied to Luke and translated, who was also chosen by the church, that is, appointed or elected by the suffrage of the churches to travel with us, etc. The verb properly denotes to stretch out the hand, and as it was customary to elect to office or to vote by stretching out or elevating the hand, so the word simply means to elect, appoint, or designate to any office. The word here simply means, uh, here means simply to an election or appointment of elders. It is said indeed that Paul and Barnabas did this, but probably all that is meant by it is that they presided in the assembly when the choice was made. It does not mean that they appointed them without consulting the church, 
But it evidently means that they appointed them in the usual way of appointing officers by the suffrage or by the voting of the people. Brethren, this kind of apostolic oversight is evident also in the Jerusalem church's choice of its first deacons, as I suggested earlier. The church's selection process was supervised by the apostles, but the individuals chosen to serve as deacons was designated and decided by the membership of the church. You'll remember what the apostles said to the church when it, it needed men to carry on work that they couldn't leave prayer and the, and the ministry of the word to do. What did they say? Acts 6 and verse 3. But select from among you, you church, you select from among yourselves, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. You select them, we'll put them in charge. So notice that pastors and deacons in New Testament churches were not chosen by an external authority structure such as practiced by Presbyterians and Episcopalians, but were selected by the membership of individual local churches and during the infancy of the church when it was ruled by Christ's living apostles. I think that's significant. This was the practice of the primitive church. The example of the apostles remains the model for Christ's local churches today. This is our conviction and will continue to be our practice. The wording of our confession reflects the New Testament pattern, beginning with the congregational selection of office bearers down to the ritual of formal ordination. <clears throat> London Baptist Confession, chapter 26, paragraph 9. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common, excuse me, common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein, and of a deacon, that he also be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and by the imposition of hands. Very plain. Here in the formal ordination of an elder or a deacon, the imposition or the laying on of hands is not to be confused with the raising of the hand of the congregation in the election of elders. Rather, it refers to the ritual setting apart of a new elder or deacon by the eldership of the church. Support for this ritual is founded, that is, the laying on of hands. In Timothy's ordination, as he had hands laid upon him by the eldership of the Ephesian church. This language informs our church's constitution. I'm not talking about the confession now, but the constitution, which states regarding the ordination of a man to the eldership or diaconate. Ordination. Following the election of an officer, there shall be a portion of a regular worship service 
set aside at which time the officer shall be ordained by the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 1 Timothy 4.14 If there be no existing eldership, this function may be performed by brethren designated by the church and or elders invited from one or more sister churches. So this envisions a church without a pastor. A man is raised up within. They call pastors from another church or they designate those lay hands upon that one. Or the existing eldership that that elder does so, he may invite other men to lay hands as well upon the one who's being inducted into the office of elder or deacon. And our Constitution goes on to say, This solemn act should always be accompanied by the special prayers of the whole church. Acts 13, 1 through 3, and chapter 14, and verse 23. And I would suggest even, and especially in the case of an elder, with fasting. So we've seen a concise confessional statement supporting the plurality of elders, a brief survey of the New Testament witness to the plurality of elders. Thirdly, we saw the selection and ordination of a plurality of elders. Fourthly, notice a succinct presentation of the New Testament terms used for elders. Three key terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament describing and identifying the official leaders of a local church. And though they are essentially synonymous, each one describes the work of an elder from a slightly different angle, but each one overlaps the others in meaning. First, the most common term used in the New Testament for church leaders is elder. Elder, presbyteros. And as the word suggests, it regards a church's leader as a mature man, He's not a novice in the Christian faith, but he's a man of some age and proven experience. He possesses earned respect for his godly character and evident wisdom. Second, church leaders are called overseers or bishop, episcopos. This term indicates the duty of a church leader to watch over the welfare of others. In fact, this term is used of Christ in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25 as the guardian or bishop who watches over and keeps his people. The third term for church leaders, also used interchangeably with the terms elder and overseer, is perhaps the one that comes most readily to mind. An elder or a bishop is also a pastor. He's a poimen. This term is also used of Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Also used in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. According to Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, pastors are Christ's gift to the church who are entrusted with feeding, leading, and caring for Christ's precious sheep. Brethren, each one of these terms is brought together by both Peter and Paul to describe the work of leaders in Christ's local churches. So we know that they're basically synonymous. First, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, 
Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Here's an apostle referring to himself as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd. Now there's the word pastor used in its verbal form. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight. There's the the noun in its verb form, exercising oversight, overseeing or bishoping, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Paul likewise brings all three of these titles together when admonishing the Ephesian elders regarding their duty to carefully guard Christ's blood-bought flock in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Verse 28. He says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd, there's the word pastor in his verbal form again. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So again, elders, overseers, and, and pastors are all mentioned here. So what's the conclusion to this? Well, the titles elder, overseer, and pastor are the chief terms in the New Testament identifying and describing the office the one office that Christ has created for the care of the members of His churches. And brethren, Christ is the perfect model. We must not lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ who instituted this office. They are to be shepherds like unto Christ. They are to have His heart. He is our chief model. In fact, He is the caring, loving elder brother of his father's children. He's the presiding bishop who conscientiously rules and guards his church. He's the great shepherd who purchased the, his sheep at the expense of his blood and who leads them from sin to grace and then lovingly nurtures and leads them from grace to glory. So what's the conclusion of all? This is very sobering. There could be no greater privilege and at the same time no more fearful responsibility than to serve Christ by caring for His beloved sheep. And that's why James says, Let not many of you become teachers, for you shall incur a stricter judgment. Indeed, the writer to the Hebrews says that we will have to give an account for the shepherding that we did of Christ's sheep. And notice, fifthly, the equal authority and diverse function of a plurality of elders, very briefly. And by the expressions equal authority and diverse function, I refer to two important realities that must be openly regarded and carefully nurtured in a biblical eldership. And first, each elder shares equal authority with his fellow elders in the church. There is to be no hierarchical structure in the eldership. Now I know that many churches have various names for their pastors. 
But that is not to negate the essential equality, the parity of elders within the church. I remember John MacArthur saying, and we have chairs in the back that, that illustrate this. There, when he first came to Grace Community Church, I think back in 1969, as a fairly young man, there were chairs up on the front, kind of like this, and there were lower ones, and then there was one high one. And he was expected to sit in the chair with a high back. And he said, I, I, I just can't do that, because it says something that's not true here about the parity of the, of the church. Yes, I may have a more public face in this church, but I share equal authority, and they share equal authority with me, who are the elders of this church. So whether, you know, titles like lead pastor, associate pastor, children's pet music, there's a whole plethora of various elder designations within Christ's church. And they can be helpful and useful, I, I guess, in certain ways, but they ought not negate the fact that all elders share equal authority in the church, even though their work may differ one from the other. And second, though sharing equal authority, each man within the eldership possesses differing gifts and levels of giftedness granted by God, who has also ordained different providential opportunities for ministering these gifts in the body. And brethren, this this enables, this fact enables a plural eldership to be more efficient in caring for the many and diverse needs of a church body. Christ gives different gifts to the members of the body, and He gives different gifts to the eldership to minister to the body. Preaching and teaching, counseling, administrating, all of these things. Brethren, this difference in gift and function among the elders, while recognizing their equality and authority, is assumed by Paul's exhortation to Timothy, who labored as Paul's apostolic delegate with a plurality of elders in the Ephesian church. Look at 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. I think that strongly suggests this. Equality of authority, diversity of function. I think he's talking about three groups of elders in this church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what, what do we conclude from this? Well, Paul assumes equal authority and diversity of function among all the elders in the Ephesian church. Notice he teaches that all elders rule, because some rule well. And of those who rule well, some rule well in the work of preaching and teaching. So all elders rule, some rule well, and some rule well in preaching and teaching. So what is assumed is that though equal authority of rule is shared by all the elders, the rule of each one may be expressed in different ways from the others in their job description as they care for the flock. Now, much more could and should be said here, and I hope to do so, perhaps at a more convenient time in a future message. 
I conclude with an observation by James Bannerman. In his important work on the church, he has famously written that elders are not needed for the being of a church, but for its well-being. Paul went, remember, and he established churches and places. Didn't have pastors until he came back and they were ordained in the church. Elders are not needed for the being of a church, but for its well-being. I think that's understood. And we can adapt this statement to our study, adding that a plurality of elders is not needed for the being of a church, but for its well-being. And I suggest that any biblically qualified plurality of elders will more successfully care for the flock than one man. There's a holy synergism, I believe, in the effect of having two men laboring together, that their ability and God's blessing upon it is greater than the sum total of them laboring alone. Brethren, it is for this kind of well-being that this church for over 30 years has been praying, seeking, come close to attempting, but has yet not been enjoying May this blessing soon be ours from the good hand of him who delights to give such good gifts to his church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. This is the ordinary, enduring gift that Christ has given to His church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now what does that say to us by way of three concluding applications? First of all, let us thank God for the clarity of His Word in setting forth the doctrine of the plurality of elders. I think it's plain. It's just a cursory study that we did this morning, and I think right on the surface of the text is the teaching of a plurality of elders in Christ's local churches. Brethren, the doctrine of the plurality and parity of elders is easily established from just a simple reading of the New Testament. You need not be a Greek scholar to come to these conclusions. Secondly, let us continually seek the gift of Christ in providing elders for the blessing of this church. Let us ask, let us seek, let us knock. Christ delights to give precious gifts to His beloved bride. His desire is to adorn her with every good gift. And not insignificant among those gifts is the gift of pastors to his church. Finally, let the elders of this church tirelessly labor to serve Christ by building up its members in the most holy faith that they may be more increasingly conformed to Christ. 
I read Ephesians 4, 12, or 10 through 12. Now verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is why Christ gave gifts to the church. And no small gift is the gift of pastors. And may Christ be pleased to grant us that inestimable blessing in the future. Let's pray. Our Father, how clear your word is on this subject. And we pray, our Father, that as we think through the scriptures, we would think scripturally, that we would have the mind of Christ, that he, his testimony in each one of our hearts would be saying the same thing, that we would see even later on in our service this afternoon, that we would see the precious unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we would all have the mind of Christ, uh, that your grace would be evident amongst us, and that we would all sing with one voice the hymn of praise, that indeed you are good and you give gifts to Israel. So hear us as we pray these things and anticipate the work of your blessing upon us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.